Hello, welcome to the first C-Suite Exchange. We're not live today, but we are recording video and audio. So if you're listening on the podcast, you can also check out the video, which will be on YouTube. If you watch on YouTube and you want to get the high def audio, check us out on iTunes. In the studio today, my name's Graham Brown, joined by Joshua Co. Joshua, Hi. welcome. Hi, everyone. And Malik, how are you doing? Thank you. Thank you. Excellent. So you chaps have had a good lunch. You had a good chat about the background to Commune and Coda and your story as an entrepreneur. We're going to talk a little bit about the journey. And also we'll talk a little bit about what C-Suite Exchange is all about. Sure. We're here in Platform E today. Singapore, a incubator. Would you describe it as that ecosystem uh, for startups? I think I'll call it an entrepreneurship center yeah. where we help entrepreneurs through the pre-startup stage all the way till 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 they become an SME and we're happy to kick them out when they do so. Yeah, when they fled the nest. And a big part of that is education, isn't it? And storytelling. And that's why bringing Josh in today was great because people get to hear the story. And that's so important, isn't it? When you are starting out as an entrepreneur, you hear the stories of other people and they really influence you, you know, rather than necessarily, you know, what they teach you at school. And I just want to start there because I want to pick this up, Josh, is that you said something a while ago. I don't want to catch you out because this is on record. You said something a while ago that, uh, you know, when you were starting out, how, how much your family was influenced by your parents and your grandparents in, in building the company as well. And it's your brother, Julian, is that correct? Yes, that's right. And he, he would said that he would uh, visit, envision himself sitting behind his dad, you know, when asked the question, you know, what do you want to be when you grow up? And drawing the picture of that. Um, tell us a little bit about the story of the company itself and actually who started it and what the genesis of that was. Okay, so uh, basically I'll, I'll start off with Coda. That's the, the parent company. So it started by my grandfather in 1972. He was a carpenter by trade. Uh, he worked for the government for a while and then in 1972 he started his own um, furniture business called Coda. So we started off uh, manufacturing for for brands in the UK such as MFI um, and, and slowly moved on to, to other markets around the world. So we are currently uh, producing for a lot, a lot of uh, big retailers in the US as well as other parts of the world. Mm -hmm. But in, in 2011, we decided to come up with our own brand called Commune. I think this was started um, because we felt that the, we, we were designing a lot of stuff ourselves, but um, we, do, we didn't have something to call our own. We didn't have a brand to call our own. And we wanted to develop something that that had a long-lasting legacy for for the family. Mm -hmm. So in 2011, we started. We founded this um, startup called Commune, uh, focused on providing affordable uh, furniture with high quality and good design for the masses. So, Coda was the, the 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 master brand that started with your your grandfather. That's right. And Commune was the the newer business and was it you that started that was that your it father was, uh, it was a, it was a joint family decision yeah. i okay. think the whole family wanted something but um the the third generation uh family members mm. being me myself as well as my cousin right sorry my cousin myself and my brother uh were the ones who were instrumental in, in growing this business right and you'd mentioned that as well when we were having the lunch and you talked about the family and how important that is especially here in asia isn't it i mean you know from your experience as well, Malik, that, you know, here in Asia, this is a real thing, isn't it? Where you have these sort of family businesses and you have the second or third generation coming through. And one of the challenges, isn't it, that, you know, they want to go and put their own stamp on the business as well. So I mean, what sort of things have you seen here in Southeast Asia? I think it's interestingly, we are seeing a lot more ski on the second or third generation saying, look, uh, the traditional business has, has, has served us well over the last maybe 50 years or 80 years in some cases. 
Uh, and it's possible, and it, it, they're really challenging uh, the way some of these traditional SMEs do business. They they see it as up, the, upon them to keep the business going, to keep the legacy going. And I mean, I'm seeing a lot more uh, what I would call disruptions within some of these traditional mm. SMEs. Uh, re- I'll tell you a short story. Recently, I saw a $150 million uh, traditional printing press company. Uh, and when it was time for the kids to take over, the kids said, look, this is going to be disrupted because they were the number one producers of uh, the Bible and Quran in Indonesia. Mm. And they said, everybody's going digital. So what they did was they started an app to, 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 to disrupt uh, the traditional printing business. And they actually leveraged on the, the traditional printing business by getting better rates uh, for their supplies, for the supply chain. So I think both can live in harmony. We're seeing a lot of Asian skions uh, balancing the act. Mm. And I think one of the more interesting questions I asked uh, uh, Joshua earlier on was, you know, uh, how difficult was it to, to overcome some of the, yeah. the challenges with family? Uh, one one, one skion I interviewed uh, recently who took over a large business in Singapore, uh, he made a comment. He said, it's, it's a family business, but it's not a business of the family yeah. to know what's happening sometimes. Uh, so I think it, it's increasingly... Uh, prevalence uh, of skions now saying, look, we have to change, we have to make improvements, we've got to build a brand, we've got to build a, uh, something that's sustainable. If we don't do this, someone else will. You have to, right? Because yeah. that's the challenge, isn't it? We see many family businesses, like in fashion, for example, in Europe, who have gone under because that second or third generation have, have, you know, haven't managed to put those necessary changes in place, right? And I mean, if, even with you, I mean, it's sort of a very analog handcraft artisan business isn't it and then you've got for example like virtual reality on one side of it as well so and when you started in the business were you did you start like we were a kid like working around the business and wondering about actually your sort of entry point into the family business here yeah so i think this this whole family culture uh i started helping my, my family business from a very young age. In fact, after school, most of my holidays were spent uh, in the warehouse, helping to pack furniture, helping to assemble furniture. What age were you? Uh, I can't mention that over, over <laughs> 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 not. Younger uh, than... Not young. a legal age, <laughs> I would say. Yeah, but, but it's family, so... Okay, yeah. there you go. No, you were just kind of looking and yeah, observing. Yeah, I was just right? looking and helping out where I could. Right. Yeah. So for, from young, I was exposed to... Um, even the customers as well. My dad would mm. bring me along for for business dinners, and and I was dealing, I was having conversations with with a lot of, of big buyers of ours from a very young age. So I was exposed to that kind of uh, environment where my furniture was part of the family, and and that that encouraged me to to pursue this career after even my uh, my my university degree mm. as well as my my MBA. Yeah, what did you see when you were working in that environment? What sort of things did you experience that maybe you know if you just had done the MBA? You would have missed out on. I think um, probably the, the key issue, the key areas that uh, you see is, is the actual uh, because it's a very like you said, it's a very handcraft mm. um, industry. A lot of, of labor goes into it. So actually understanding, standing the workers' uh, requirements as well as what what they they face on a daily basis, as well as the conditions that they, they operate in, I think it helps me to to give a, a better perspective when I make decisions now by yeah. understanding how. Uh, furniture is actually made. It's Do not you just have an figure. empathy with a? Yeah, with yeah, definitely. I mean, it's, it's a it's a tough industry. It's a very right. dirty um, environment, hot, sweaty environment. And, right. and when you you sell a product like that, it's good to know where it's from, 
so you can you can show value in what you've actually yeah. selling. It would be quite easy as well, isn't it? Especially you know, given the nature of your position in the business, it, you could kind of sit in the the comfortable air conditioned office and ignore all that, right? Do you still go back to the shop floor, so to speak, and talk to the the craftsmen? And yeah, yeah, definitely. I think one of my my key learning points that I had in my career was actually spending a year in Vietnam. So I actually right. spent a year managing the factory. Uh, of about a thousand workers and, and really every day was walking the shop floor, solving problems with them. And I think that helped me help me to to gain a better understanding of, mm. of the entire value chain. Uh, it's not just just packaging something and selling it, but the, the difficulty in actually designing a product and manufacturing something like that. Yeah. And when you were doing that and you were talking to the workers, how did you get over that issue of being, uh oh, here he comes, here's the sun coming. So, you know, it's the son of the boss coming. I better you know, make sure that everything, all the tools are in place. And because it's important for you to get the real feedback and understand them, that, you know, exac exactly what their frustrations were as in any production process. Yeah. How did you do that? I think what I did was to do very random visits to the shop floor. Right. Yeah. So it's any time of the day, I'll just pick myself up from my desk, walk downstairs uh, while walking the shop floor, ask questions directly to the staff. So they have no time to actually prepare to, right. to showcase the best in front of, of the boss's son, but uh, actually seeing what actually happens on a day-to-day -day basis. Yeah, and, and did you find that something came naturally to you going out and walking the shop floor, or you know, was it tempting just to kind of sit in the the, the management world? Yeah, I think I think walking the shop floor is, is extremely important, especially mm. in a manufacturing environment such as ours. Uh, getting to know what what are the the material issues that mm. may happen. I think all these stuff you don't get well uh, when sitting at a desk. Yeah, that's really important, isn't it, for understanding as well how a business like yours evolves and changes. Because you know, if you had actually experienced what's happening at the input level of the business, you understand where it can go as well, rather than you know you read this thing in the MBA course, therefore this might happen here. You've actually seen it and felt it as well. Yeah, there's the, you know. If you go to like the Japanese management philosophy, of, they have something called Genchi Genbutsu, which is basically means go and see mm. in production. In Toyota, for example, they would force all the management executives to go out and walk around and see, you know, why is this machine not working? Why is there a leak here? Why is there somebody doing this over here and so on? So within your process as well, what sort of things did you pick up now that we sort of arc that back to for example, virtual reality, mm -hmm. how did your experience of being on the shop floor influence that? Well, I think um, in terms of, of understanding the, the detailed technical sides of things, I think it's, it's always easy to, to say, I want this done and I want it done that way. But mm. because I walk the shop floor, I understand sometimes there are implications to the decisions that you made. There are things that happen in uh, the, the whole process that you need to actually understand before the final product comes out. So in terms of virtual reality, we, we always uh, wanted to have this offering, but to get the digital models in the system, that was a, a big thing to begin with. Mm. And, and it's not something that can be done straight away. So we had a, a thieving problem in the first two years getting this whole uh, technology introduced. I think the, the, the technology was there but we didn't have the assets in place to actually make it effective. So, so understanding the, the, the whole process chain allowed me to actually uh, solve those those uh, issues that mm. needed to be done in the first part so that I can have a proper role in the future. Yeah, yeah. So that, was it a year that you were in Vietnam? Yep. Yeah. What did that do for you? Was that quite an ex exposure into, you know, a world of business that you hadn't seen before? Because you had worked a lot in the family business from an early age and seen a lot of things. 
going to Vietnam, how did that change things for you? Yeah, I think when I was uh, starting up my career in the family business, it was mainly a desk-bound job, mainly helping uh, the current CFO then to to actually uh, churn out some numbers for M mergers and acquisitions. So it's very, f very big difference from, from that and the shop floor. So I think the, the actual experience down at the shop floor enabled me to to make better decisions now. Mm. As, as a CEO of, of the retail arm, uh, we have to to spec products all the time. We have to uh, source vendors. And I think that experience there enabled me to have a better uh, holistic view of vendors because I, I saw it personally how we have done it ourselves. When I visit a vendor, I know exactly what to look out for mm. and what can be or what can be done feasibly. Yeah, this is a really interesting area. I mean, there's a lot of management philosophy now focused on empathy and service and ultimately every business is a service business to some level. You have to sell to somebody. You have to provide a good service to somebody. And I'll turn this over to Malik. That um, you know, you see a lot of startup founders, and you see a lot of startup founders, successful ones and some not so successful ones. This whole idea of getting out and going to the shop floor and you know, understanding what the people who make the stuff do on an average daily basis does it come naturally to entrepreneurs or do you have you know in your educational capacity do you have to train that into people i think it's to, to some people second nature uh, especially those self-made uh, uh startups uh, people who are experts in the area who've, who've risen from very junior positions to senior positions and then decided that they want to do a startup i think that comes naturally to to, to, to that group of people uh, there are people who, who've decided that they're going to do a total different startup from what they've been trained in. Mm. And sometimes the challenge is uh, they want to, 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 they have an idea of how they want it done. And then they're talking to another guy in the supply chain and says, I want it done this way without any understanding on, on, on the impact on supply chain, the, the ergonomics around it, why things are done in certain ways. Uh, I think the, the, the shop floor mentality if you're a startup, is 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 you absolutely need to do it. I think it's, yeah. it's critical uh, because if you don't know exactly how things are being done at that level, it's going to be very hard to to imagine uh, the second phase, the third phase, even in in the tech sector. If if you're not plugged in into the first generation or the first application that comes out, it's very hard to have version two or version three. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the, the the I think the the entrepreneurs who succeed usually have a mindset of of, of inquisity. They, they, they want to go down to every single bolt and they really want to dismantle everything and find out how things work. And I think those are the guys who, who, who make it. Uh, those who don't really go down that path are either very well funded <laughs> and they can employ consultants right. or, or bring people in. And that's another point I want to make. Though. If, if, if there are things that you don't know about, uh, I think it's important to, to, to bring the right talent in mm. or bring the right expertise in. And sometimes, because of the way our entrepreneurs are funded, our startups are funded, they try to cut corners mm -hmm. in terms of trying to save money uh, when they're really better off spending that X amount of money on, on getting the right people, the right expertise mm. in to advise them. Uh, because that's going to be a critical success factor. If, that, if you don't get that prototype right or you don't get the model right from very early on, it's a very high chance that they will they will they will fail. And here, at platform E, I think uh, here comes a pitch. Uh, here, Just platform E, yeah. we're always pitching yeah. in the world of startups. Yes. Come uh, on, we've got the programs uh, to, to to help what I call pre startups to look at their, their 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 MVP, to look at their business model, to look at how they're pitching, to look at at where they fit into the whole whole supply chain. I think that's very important. There are a lot of people who 
who come to us and say, I've got an idea, but not really sure how they want to do it. Then you've got what I call people who possibly who are in the later part of the career who've decided that you know they don't want to, to be in the corporate world and, and they want to start something. I think it's important to put some kind of uh, model for them to follow at the, at the pre-startup mm. stage. But we call ourselves Entrepreneurship Centre because we also realise that uh, startup, the different parts of the journey, and, and it's important that we also skill a lot of these startups to move into the, the next uh, part of their stage, which is SME. So we call it the scale-up part of the journey as well. And and having the C-suite exchange uh, uh, platform is, is to make sure that, that uh, it's just not a free lunch, to make sure that our startups come for an hour every month, they get to meet, they get to hear from a, a someone who's done it, mm. someone who's travelled that journey. Because I think Rina pointed out, our managing partner pointing out earlier on that it, it's a very lonely journey. Yeah. Sometimes you're stuck at 41 in your little suite or your, your hot desk, you're talking to yourself half the time. Uh, it's And you see a lot of failures along the way. I think I think failure is is is, is part of, of, of the journey from a startup to an SME and it's I think how you, what you learn from it and what the lessons you pick up and mm. how you, you bounce back but it's easy for me to say you've got to bounce back you've got to have a resilience when you're sitting there in your little hot desk losing money bleeding money and the idea is to, to bring a host of people every month to say look these guys have done it these guys have learned certain lessons uh, these guys have taken things in a certain direction and, and they're doing well they're still learning but hey there is hope after that that, that, that journey so that's the idea of, 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 of how C-Suite Exchange came about. Yeah, yeah, and we're still failing, no matter what sort of level of success we're at. I mean, yeah. I've been in business for over 20 years. Every day, I'm failing at something. Yeah. It's all part of it. How about yourself, Josh? Have you failed at anything recently? Yeah, I think uh, the pre the I was sharing just now on a partnership in, in China. I think that yeah. was the one of the biggest failures that we had. Um, but that's it. It was a failure that allowed us to learn a lot of lessons and that lessons help us to expand in China effectively yeah. today. Yeah. So it was about partnerships, uh, selecting the right partner. I think uh, having a, a right partner when you go for, for, for business ventures overseas is very important. A strong cultural fit, a strong um, common, common vision and common goal would be, mm. would be crucial. So when you moved into China, I, mean, I know a few years back you had a goal of opening 100 stores in China and at that time you were about 30, weren't you? So wh where are you now? We are at 46 going on to 50 in the next uh, two to three months. Right. W when did you decide that you were going to open stores in China? We started this whole uh, internationalization journey quite early on. Mm. Uh, we, when we founded the brand, it was not meant to be a Singapore-based, uh, only a Singapore-based op op operating out of Singapore, but to go, go regional. Mm. And then we started... Um, Looking at China way ahead in 2013, we already started. And that's where the, 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 the partnership that I, I was mentioning before, that's where right. we started. So five years ago, you decided you're going to get into China. Knowing what you know now about getting into China and going back to 2013, what do you know differently about, you know, what have you learned in those five years? Because mm. any entrepreneur listening to this will say, okay, right, I've been here as well. Let's hear it. Those five years, it's never a straight line. It's up, down, up, down, all the way. What, what do you know differently now? What the biggest biggest learning point that I had over the, the course of the, the five years was the, is that the the pace of uh, change in China is extremely extremely fast. Mm. Uh, from from the way they shop 
uh, to to even the way things are being marketed, it changes every year. So having a very in-depth understanding of, of the local market, especially in China, is crucial. You need uh, strong people who, who are adapting to change very fast in order to execute effectively. Mm. So the stores that you have in China are retail stores. Are these high street stores? They are all, uh, most of them are, are in furniture malls. So mm-hmm. in China, uh, furniture is sold out of, of malls with a couple of hundred brands in, in there. So mm. it's a challenge to attract the consumer into your store. Right. So we're working on ways how to, to innovate, to, to bring people into our stores. Yeah. So before you went into China, I'm sure this conversation happened is, okay, look, if you open in China, somebody's going to walk into your store, copy all the designs, and the store's going to open up next door to you, half the price, and producing it half as fast. How did you deal with that? Was that a doubt that you had going into China? And how has it been for you now? Yeah, it's 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 something that everyone should be aware of. I think that's, uh, and we are facing it every month. Every month we have complaints of, of uh, another brand copying our products, being next to us at half the price. That's exactly right. what, what's happening. Yeah. So what we do is we innovate. We innovate in terms of our concept design, in our shop design, in our product design, and also into our retail uh services so recently we, we rolled out the the virtual reality solution so that's in changing the whole way in terms of of how furniture retail is being conducted by offering a service that mm. that normal brands who copy products can't can offer um, the next next phase is is actually an omni-channel retail uh, concept where we're actually going to understand the consumer better and actually target them even at the the online search phase uh, thereby bringing them to store and then closing the deal a bit. Yeah, you must be learning a lot in China as well because the the Chinese retail market is extremely advanced. It's, it's more advanced than I think a lot of people realize, more advanced than Singapore. Yes, definitely. A lot of people talk about offline to online, O to O, O, well, it's going the other way. And you also got omni-channel as well. There's stores in China where you can go to a hairdresser and they will have like AI voice or facial recognition embedded in you know the the screens and so on. You know, sometimes when we look at the stores here in Singapore, it looks like we're in the last century as well. So can you give us a flavor? For example, you've mentioned virtual reality. Give us a flavor of what kind of things are going on in the furniture space in China and what you're learning. Yeah, I think they, they have moved virtual reality to uh, an in-store solution to an online solution. In the past, virtual reality used to be very uh, asset in- intensive, so you needed a lot of hardware and all that to, to run. But now they're able to have it as a, a cloud version where, where actually consumers can play around uh, in, their, in, their confine, uh, in, the, in the comfort of their own home and actually design their homes. So I think the, the technology shift towards there has been empowering consumers to actually uh, take part in this whole design process. Mm. So what would that be? Would it be the virtual reality headsets or is it augmented reality with the phone? Yeah. Both, kind of both, they are, they're yeah. moving towards it. Both, both augmented and virtual reality. Right. Both serve the very different purposes. Yeah. How did you sell that internally? So, you know, you're obviously more up on technology than the, the older generations, as will your children be as well in the future and the cousins of the, the family and so on. That, you know, you went to the family with this idea that you're dealing with something very, you know, it's a touchy-feely product, isn't it? You know, people like to come and they touch the wood and they feel the craftsmanship and they hear the, the story and so on. And you're talking about adding this virtual layer to that. How was that sales process internally for you? Yeah, I think it was a, a tough one because it's definitely a capital-intensive project to develop this whole virtual reality solution. But it started off with, I think, a, a design thinking approach. Basically, what the consumer needs or, or problems that they face. And we constantly hit um, uh, face consumers telling us that they couldn't 
visualize their product in their own home. They couldn't, and, and we ended up losing the customer because they ended up going to another shop mm. and, and, and with, a, with a, probably a designer there that can just sketch something up for them. So we wanted to empower our sales staff with these tools that enabled the consumers to come in and actually um, replicate their home setting in store by, 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 by putting in the models and, and all that kind of stuff. So, so it, it came, uh, so convincing the, the, the older generation to accept it was, was a case of solving a customer problem. Mm. So as long as you have a problem that needs to be solved, I think that it's a, a good pitch in terms of uh, right. getting, getting yeah. approvals. From that perspective, it makes sense, doesn't yeah. it? So the customer, they want to see this item in their home. Yep. There's no other way of doing it. They can go to a competitor could probably do it, you know, a cheaper, less, you know, quality, less higher quality version, but they could probably sketch out the home for them and show them that sort of model and that will win it for them. That's right. So, okay, in that instance, just as an example, if you um, are trying to take a, one of your products and put it into a customer's home through virtual reality, can we talk about an example product that you have? What's, what's one of your best selling items? Uh, it would be a, a sofa. Let's a say sofa. a three-seater sofa. The, the common problem uh, consumers face is whether the sofa fits in their living room. Right. That's a, a constant problem. And they end up bringing their measuring tapes and start measuring and going home and measuring the floor and all that. But this solution, and all I need is their floor plan. I just need to, them to bring their floor plan to me. Within five minutes, I can draw out their room, their living room, yeah. place the furniture in there, and they know whether it fits or not. Right. Because the alternative that we've been sort of doing for the last however many years is, as you say, the tape measure. You go back home, you go back to the store, you go back home, yeah. and you, then you, oh no, I forgot to measure the, the door to see if I can actually get it around the door and all those kind of things. But you can basically take a floor plan. And how do they get the floor plan? Do they just take a photo of they the They can take room? a photo of their floor plan. As long as yeah. there are dimensions there, we are able to scale it to size. Our products are all scaled to size and, and it, just, it, just, it just showcases where that product looks good in the environment and we can actually tailor the environment to their actual home setting so we have flooring options we have wall options wall yeah. colors curtain colors and we're able to tailor the the virtual environment to to be as close to the physical environment right does that mean there will be a day where you don't need a physical retail store for me i don't think there'll be a day that you don't need a physical retail store because end of the day the consumer wants to experience a, a product before they buy um, for furniture, it's a bit more unique uh, compared to the, the FMCG or, or fashion where you can return stuff easily. I think so far, it's, it's pretty hard to uh, return in terms of logistics. It's it costs a lot to bring it to your house mm. and bring it back again. So getting, getting the confirmation done in store is quite important. And uh, we, uh, we focus a lot on experiential shopping. So not, it's not mm. just a showcase of products, but actually allowing them to know the brand better uh, we have we have um, a lot of of uh, elements of of sensory experience. For example, our shops all have a signature scent that goes on. Mm. The music players is all consistent. So all these all these are meant to to engage the senses of the consumer, so that their sixth sense of emotion can be can be engaged. And we, we feel that once emotion is engaged, there's a much more long lasting. Um, um, long-lasting impression of the brand experience experience right? yeah that's that's, right. that's the word because yeah. it's, it's always you know when you walk to something and you smell something yeah or you hear a music it's evocative it gets, isn't it it, it takes you back, you back. exactly you back. like you know grandma's cooking that's right that's it's like right. straight back there it's interesting zara as an example has a signature scent yep. you know and one of the most successful retail brands in the world right every zara store has that smell and all the clothes have that sort of lingering scent 
and that's a trademark scent, right? Right, 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 right. Retail and the experience. I think how important that is in sort of protecting your brand long term as well. I mean, you know, Apple as an example, the success of Apple is in the recent years fundamentally down to the retail store. If you look at in the US, 63% or 64% of the US um, workforce work in the store. So, you know, Apple is a retail brand at the end of the day, you know, rather than being a tech brand. How do you sort of get the right people for that? Because, you know, Apple invests heavily in getting people who love people, right? That is so important. You know, for you, for your brand, when you touch that person walking into the store, you can have all the technology and so on. But at the end of the day, it's that person who walks up and says, hi, you know, how can I help you? Or are you looking at this sofa or how do you get the right people? Because that must be a fundamental challenge for you. Definitely. We evolved over the last two years by changing our uh, recruitment uh, criteria. In the past, we used to just employ people who had good salesmanship. Mm. Now we hire sales, design trained salespeople. So these could have could be people with interior design training or, or product design training. Because we believe that for, for our kind of business, Getting confidence of the consumer is, is mm. crucial. So with a design-trained person advising the consumer on what product fits the house and what looks good, it definitely sells better than someone, than a salesman there pushing, I want you to sell this because this right, is my right. KPI to sell 10,000. 10 exactly. Yeah, it's yeah. the end of my quarter and I've got to get this yeah, one out, right? right? So how do you find those people? Because that must be a challenge, isn't it? You're, you're looking for people who are into design and also good at sales. Often those are sort of two different universities right often somebody is good at design they just focus on making stuff and the salespeople just focus on selling the widget so to speak where, where do you find those people so we we like to target the interior design train community because those people uh the, the students from those courses actually have to come out and sell oh. they it's part of their day-to-day -day process of selling their design services and, and getting consumers to to engage them so they have a natural flair for sales to begin with. So we, we targeted people from the interior design community. Mm. Yeah, but that's it. I think the strong cultural fit is very important as well. Uh, you, you want someone who, who loves the brand to begin with as well as be able to communicate the whole brand story. So, so having the, the sales skills may not be the main thing that, that sells, but convincing the customer why you should love the brand as well. Yeah, yeah. and that, that is something that you wanted to have started before they come for the, the job interview, right? That's right. So, I mean, people watch our podcast, they, they listen, and, you know, often we find that people then reach out to founders and say, hey, look, you know, I loved your story. You know, I want to come and join your team and, and, you know, build this thing, right? And it's possibly one of the most effective ways of recruiting because, you know, if somebody's heard your story, you know that they're sort of in sync with the vision and the mission and so on. You mentioned the word culture. I'm curious as to, you know, what it is in terms of your culture and, you know, what you're about. You know, why, if I'm into interior design and I'm passionate about it, why would I want to come and work for Commune and help build this? Mm. What would be sort of like the real draw for me? I think we, we, we have um, a very strong uh, goal to make every home beautiful. We want every consumer to have nice-looking furniture in their home, and and, and that, that's the start of our, our whole. That was that's what started the whole brand. We wanted our products to be in everybody's house because we felt we had a good product. It was just not in people's homes. So, um, yeah, selling selling the commune story is about creating beautiful homes. I mm. think that that's one one thing that that, that can last a, a long time. Not just making things. Yeah, not just making things, but making people's homes beautiful so that. Um, 
emo, uh, relationships can be enhanced. Yeah, mm. that's interesting. Relationships can be enhanced. I mean, you know, exactly. I mean, you know, you're creating a place of joy, aren't you? Yeah, that's right. Where people can hang out. Yeah, a, a, a dinner table is not just a dinner table. It's where yeah. relationships are built. It's where, where yeah, emotions are, are, are festered as well. Yeah, that's awesome. That's great. I mean, I've I really enjoyed this. And it's interesting to hear your story as well. And I think it's inspiring what you've achieved. And, you know, you're, you're continuing to innovate as well. You know, just before I hand it back to you, Josh, you know, Malik, your thoughts on this, this is a challenge, isn't it? If you're sort of in a family business and, you know, you weren't grandpa who, you know, started this business and, you know, it made that business successful over generations. You, you have a legacy to live up to, but at the same time, you know, you're faced with the challenge of having to innovate to survive and to thrive as a business. Because there'll be somebody from China coming in with a bit of technology, copying your IP, and boom, they're into the market. What sort of advice do we have for people like that? Because there are people out that, like that out there who listen, and often it's a, it's a lonely business because they can't turn to the family so much and ask for advice because they all have their opinions. You've seen this. How would you advise people in that situation? I think you've got to find uh, harmony within the family business. I think if there's tension, it's, it's never good. Uh, I, one of the things that uh, Joshua said earlier on at lunch that I picked up and kind of resonated very strongly with me was that he wanted to build a legacy as well. And I think if you communicate that to the founders of the business that I'm not here to make a quick buck and to flip the company in mm. five years' time. But I'm here to, 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 to carve out the legacy of the business for the next generation and for the next few years and, and preserve the values of the business. I think you will find some form of, 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 of harmony in that relationship. And I think also the founders of the businesses will, will have to somehow uh, perhaps take a step back uh, and, and, and allow the next generation to run the businesses the way they see fit, and perhaps uh, interfere when they see things going seriously wrong, mm. uh, and also for the younger generation to, to to perhaps take advantage of some of the uh, the wisdom. Uh, after all, the, the the pioneer generation in Singapore. I'm taking Singapore as an example. Uh, pro, you know, started businesses in, in in it wasn't a case of being fashionable startup those days. No, uh, didn't I'm exist. Sure, and I'm sure Joshua, <laughs> and I'm sure Joshua would agree with me that uh, a lot of a lot of family businesses started out from a sheer will to feed the family yeah. uh, and poverty. And it wasn't a choice. It was a, a way to, to, to make ends meet and a way yeah, to pay Many the bills. immigrant families as many well. Immig yeah. In Singapore, Indian families, Chinese families all start out that way. But, you know, I'm, I'm happy to, 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 to also see good examples of family businesses uh, uh, moving forward. Mm. I learned a new word recently which I shared with you. Uh, it's called family or the love capital. And Love Capital is uh, a lot of family offices these days in, in Singapore and Southeast Asia. Uh, the third generation are allowed uh, to to perhaps use a sum of money in the family office to to develop new businesses. Right. Uh, and if they lose the money, well, it's okay. Uh, but if they if they build another line of business, it, it adds to the, the the traditional family business. I think it, it's a tough challenge. Uh, it's it's something that that needs to be harmonized. Uh, I think. It requires a little bit of, uh, of I, I, if I can use the word compromise between mm. between the the older generation balance, it, right? Balance and harmony in the relationship yeah, yeah, as well. Yeah. It's it's gonna be tough. You're trying to build something and then you've got the you've got mom and dad or granddad yeah. standing in the way of every single cent that you want to spend. 
you can't completely you disrupt can't. the business. You can't. Can you? And but but on the other <laughs> hand, you, you I think if you can understand where they're coming from, and perhaps harness their experience and what they've seen, uh, a lot of times, you know, people tell me, and, and, and I come from a, a long line of family businesses as well. You know, mm. sometimes they say, "This is my baby." She yeah, said, "You yeah, are my yeah. child." The business was the one that fed the family throughout the generations, and and sometimes some founders are, are overzealous in trying to keep the. The, the baby going mm-hmm. without letting go and it's it a good requires, vibe, so. requires a balance I think talking of the, the generations um, Josh was it you or Julian that got paid a cent for every string that you attached to the pro- was, was it me. you? yeah that was me when I was in primary school my grandma school. right? yeah my grandma primary school yeah okay so <laughs> bit of pocket money there yeah. um, do you have children now? yes I have two yeah, how two old boys, are your kids? five and three five and three yeah um, I'm, I'm, I've got a, I've got a 12 year old son as well, and I'm always sort of like curious to see like where they're going to go, where he's going to end up. Is he going to become an entrepreneur like me? You know, now he's sort of at that age where he, he knows what being your own business is all about. Yeah. He knows what careers now sort of approaching him with your own kids when they grow up. How will that conversation be f- for you? Let, let's look at two scenarios. The first one is they say, okay, we we want to be a part of this business and we want to grow it. I mean, how do you, what would you do to make them part of the business? Are you going to get them to tie product tags and strings and pay them a cent each? Surely you would have given them a bit more money now. Yeah, right? probably now two cents. Two cents, <laughs> you're so generous. Yeah, I think I think it's important to expose them to the family business, but mm. at the end of the day, they need to have passion f- to work under that family business to begin with. I think there are a lot of uh, next generation um, uh, family members that, that got forced into it. Yeah. And and I think that's the worst thing that you can do, but it's to force your next generation because all they do is complain about being in the family business. I think you don't want that to happen. You want somebody who, who has passion to grow the business and, and, and want to come and work mm. for the family business. Yeah. So expose them, but don't force them. Yeah. Uh, that's, yeah a, go on. that's an interesting point because uh, I think uh, there are a lot of family businesses that were driven to the ground because there was sheer expectation that you were born to take over. Yeah, there was no choice. No choice in the matter. And, and some, I think it requires a certain kind of character to, to, to grow the business as well. And and if you're forced into it, it usually ends up in blood and tears. Yeah, the end. yeah. yeah. And it, like yourself, you spent a bit of time out, didn't you? You went to I Australia. Spent, and uh, Yeah, I spent three years in Australia. And you also you went I was to in Bloomberg for Yeah, Bloomberg for well. e- as an analyst, weren't you? For yes, e- an analyst. Yeah. 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 So you experienced a little bit of the world outside as well. Yeah. So would you encourage your kids to do that as well? Yeah, I think it's good to get exposure to the outside world before stepping into the family business because yeah. uh, the family business is a, quite an enclosed um, ecosystem. Yeah. You don't get a lot of, of, of uh, new best practices being injected, especially when things have been running for 30, 40 years. Mm-hmm. So you need someone to go out there, learn the ropes, see how MNCs do stuff and try to improve their, their family business with, with the knowledge that's learned out there. Yeah. No, that's great advice as well. And if one of your sons, you know, eventually took over the business and was you were sort of like, you know, bringing him into the business and he was to say to you, look, dad, look, this is how it's done around here. You know, you know, you don't know anything about the new technology. This is how people are buying stuff now. You just move over a little bit, you know. How would you react to that? Is that going to be a tough conversation to have? Yeah, I think probably when I'm that age, I'll probably react the same way my <laughs> <laughs> it's karma yeah, right yeah, yeah it's karma yeah but i think that's that's life i think yeah uh your 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 decisions and 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 all that have an, uh, your experiences have, have have shaped the way you 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 think and then yeah you just need to have an open mind i mm. guess i gotta constantly remind myself not to fall into the the same trap you know? 
Yeah, great advice and stay humble. Yeah, stay humble. Josh, Joshua from Commune and Malik from Platform E, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you for sharing this conversation today and thank you for sharing your journey with us. I mean, I'm sure people listening or watching this might want to reach out to you for whatever reason. It may be people that want to join your team. It may be people in different markets who could open up markets for you, potential partners. What is the most effective way of getting through to you? I think uh, you can write in to me yeah. uh, at my email address, which I can off provide yeah. to you guys later. Okay, we'll put it all in the show notes. Yeah. Josh, thanks so much. Thanks a lot. Pleasure, Mike.